The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. We already are sponsored by them. Yeah, we are sponsored by them. So our spit glasses are from Gumbuck Munchu. <laughs> Another cold start. So wait a minute, you're on. You're, right I now? love this. Oh yeah, just, we're on. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we, we got to do like the. You just turn it on when we walk in the door. The stuff that we were talking about for the 15 minutes that we were all just sitting around here. Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe it was only entertaining to me though. Okay, well, oh, I'm, was, I'm gonna it, help myself. To it's the all rose good since we're recording. So, yeah, exactly. You are. I'm say, rose rose in. rose all day. <laughs> Well, this is a perfect day for it, too. Basically, you have to have Bob Cabral on the show to get a splash of this rosé in your glass. It's, <laughs> it's Basically, it's like only a myth that you hear through the plaza, and then it's gone. It's true. I've seen pictures of this, this wine. This is actually out in my cellar, right? <laughs> I, I was going to say, this morning, I, no lie, because I knew there wouldn't be any at the wine room. Yeah. I've seen more people <laughs> photograph this bottle than actually have tasted yeah, it. Exactly. Absolutely. It gets tagged on more uh, yeah, maybe we should put Twitter it on accounts and social Thank media. You, right now. Well, now, what do you call that color? It's such a beautiful color. That's rosé pink, baby. That is. It's salmon. got a. It's I a call salmon. it a salmon. Yeah, salmon, it's got yeah. a little bit darker red um, yeah. um, hue to it. It's it's because the base is uh, Syrah. Oh, okay. Well, hey, everybody. Okay. Welcome to the Winemakers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm John Myers. I'm here with Sam Katuri photo- photographing a bottle of uh, rosé from Three Sticks. Bob Cabral, winemaker from Three Sticks. And, of course, Bart Hansen and Brian Casey. How are you guys doing today? I'm surprised I got everybody everybody over here. Oh, we came for the rosé. Because we're, <laughs> we're, we're painting the house tomorrow, and this is going to be stripped down by the guys. and the, just, You're tearing apart the studio tomorrow? Oh, man. A.K.A. Yeah, John's yeah. dining room? Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, Bob, thanks for coming on. And, and oh, thanks for Obviously, um, from the reaction, thanks for bringing the rosé. You had right. to bring it out of yeah. your stash. Yeah, you know, I realized when I was leaving this, I live up in Healdsburg. Yeah. And so the winery is down on 8th Street East. I think everybody here knows that, but the, the listeners ghetto. don't. Yeah. The wine ghetto. The, the wine Sonoma ghetto. wine ghetto. And we I, make our wine. We talk about the wine ghetto on, on here. Yeah, well, they yeah, know. Everybody knows 8th Street. The romantic yeah. industrial park yeah. where all the wine in the world is made. It is. It's <laughs> Some very, really great wines come out of there, though. Yeah. I mean, it, it just, I think it really goes to show that uh, creative winemakers that get really good fruit, which I think Sonoma County is noted for. Oh, man. We are getting some of the best fruit in the world. Uh, it doesn't take much to make a bottle of wine, really. Isn't I mean, that seriously, nice, I, though? It just... We you're have some getting, of the most outstanding the best growers. fruit in the yeah, world. We okay. do. It's amazing. You know what uh, Jeff Baker's been saying lately? By the way, I I'm, need I'm, some. Okay, sorry. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> what do you, need? you need some good fruit? You need some grapes? That's at the next. Right. Uh, Guess yeah. what? Sam can't help you at all. Yeah, I got <laughs> I'm lucky to get anything for 16600 But, uh, you know, Jeff Baker keeps saying uh, that he thinks... The really talented winemakers aren't mm-hmm. everybody that, that you know makes great wine. The really talented winemakers are the ones who make mediocre wine out of bad grapes. Those are the people who actually yeah. have to use their like oh. brain. You know, the the winemakers. You get great fruit. You just get out of the way. I you know? I agree with that, yeah. and that's why uh, I fall into the uh, latter 
category right. is that I need really good fruit because I'm not that good of a winemaker. <laughs> if I, but if I get really good fruit, then I have a chance. And, and that's one thing I, I realized early on when I moved up here in, in 1986 to Sonoma County. And From and, where? From Fresno, actually, I was south of Fresno. I was in Reedley, California. So yeah, you know, Bob, I, you if you don't mind, start back a little bit about your um, growing up in the ag business. And um, <laughs> I read a story about uh, about something about when a winery didn't have room for your family's grapes. Could you kind of maybe touch on that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, you know, I grew up. My um, my my dad's parents were immigrants from Portugal, and uh, so my dad was kind of first generation. Born here in California and uh, first generation to go to college. And uh, they grew grapes and almonds. And uh, I grew up on 70 acres outside of a little town called Escalon, kind of um, west of uh, Manteca, or east of Manteca, kind of northeast of Modesto. And, um, you know, my dad was farming red wine grapes in the, in the 70s, which wasn't uh, necessarily a great thing to do. There were these consortiums that would, would buy uh, professionals that would buy land uh, with grapes on. It was very the romantic side of, of you know, grape growing and winemaking. So it was doctors, <laughs> lawyers, airline pilots, um, you know, people that had uh, excess capital to invest. And they needed somebody I to I like take- that term. Excess, excess capital. capital. Yeah. yeah, we're all looking yeah. for excess capital. To <laughs> yeah, invest. me too. That's, that's the wine business. <laughs> right, looking for excess capital. To well, be the invested. wine business is where all excess capital goes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you just never see it right. again. It's just tied up forever. <laughs> right. So uh, my dad had a farm management company, and and uh, we were growing uh, primarily red wine grapes and and then almonds. And when I left, um, so what varieties were that mostly? You know, Zimpendel primarily at that time or no, primarily it was uh, Carignan, Zinfandel, uh. Barbera, uh, Grenache would really? be the the main red varietals. And Yay. then he had a, a parcel up by Sacramento that was 320 acres, and there was actually some Merlot, Cab Franc, and Sauvignon Blanc right. that used to go to Mondavi Oakville, which my dad <laughs> thought was cool because he got the grower discount at, at Oakville. So he used to just, I think he spent all his money at, <laughs> at Oakville when he'd go up to get the check. But uh, So it was primarily, like I said, Grenache, Zinfandel, um, Carignan, uh, at our home ranch, we had almost 30 acres of almonds and then some old vine Carignans that were about 40 years old when my folks bought the place wow. in 1969. Wow. And then my dad planted another 14 or 16 acres of Zinfandel and went from the old head, head prune, head trained, mm-hmm. to a bilateral cordon. Uh, so anyway, uh, we were uh, farming these properties around um, primarily southern San Joaquin County, northern Stanislaus County. And, uh, you know, in the mid 70s, late to mid 70s, 76, 77, 78, uh, some huge crops. I mean, you know, we were flood irrigating down there. Hmm. And when my dad would plant a new vineyard, I remember our home ranch for the first three years, he had a contract with Del Monte in um, Modesto for pimento bell peppers. And so he interplanted the grapes with bell peppers. And I couldn't eat bell peppers for about. 10 years after <laughs> after that. Wait a minute. When you say interplanted, what does that what does that mean? So, so in, in between the so that you had new vines that you were just basically growing and training yeah. and then he planted bell peppers. These bell pepper plants. Yeah, so your vines yeah. are every 10 feet. 
Yeah, 12 feet. 12 feet, 12 feet, right. Yeah. Giant tree vines. Yeah. And then you, in that 12 feet, you plant, you know, probably six bell pepper plants. Why doesn't everyone do this? Uh, well, well, they don't have in, a contract with Del Monte. Exactly. Back in the '60s, uh, well, even in the '50s, Joe Rocchioli planted string beans. And one year, off the Rocchioli Ranch, they harvested 400 tons of green beans. Oh off of, of now, course, they have 160 acres. But what a beautiful spot, too, yeah. Rocchioli. So we man. were we were growing um, bell peppers, you know, in between, and and um, you know, you would put. You'd take a hose of anhydrous ammonia or nitrogen into the irrigation. You'd flood irrigate all this stuff. So the vines would grow like two feet in a week after you irrigated and fertilized them. And then we were picking bell peppers, had some like gigantic fucking bell peppers. Oh, they were. Oh my God. We were. We were. We were uh, picking these like every six days. Bell peppers. Wow. Just wow. You, it was a continuous haul of them. So, uh, needless to say, you got big crops down there. You know, 10 ton, 12 ton, 14 ton wow. to the acre was wow. not uncommon um, for a lot of those ranches wow. down there. But you were only getting 55, 65. When white zin started to get popular in the late 70s, you, you got $85 a ton. So you were still only grossing $800, $900 an acre. Wow. wow, you know. So, anyway, back to for my all dad. For reference all that sake, property, all that income. You know? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Well, that's and why, you, and that's why you planted bell, bell peppers, peppers in right. between every vine, and right. found every other way that you could, you know, squeeze a nickel out of that dirt because you and, hadn't. And you hoped almond prices were really high. And, and yeah, what which is, they weren't. What's the, <laughs> what's the highest you've ever seen a Napa cab go for per ton? Grapes. Uh, or, I oh. mean, if you want to talk about like. Beckstoffer Tokolon fruit at forty thousand dollars a ton or something yeah. crazy there you like go. that. Yeah. You know the the Oakville Cab- Oakville Ranch Cabernet that um, you know we sell is all north of fifteen. Um, yeah. You know, so you're talking about but two tons to the acre. That's right, or less versus yeah. fourteen and a oh, uh, hundred thousand. You know, ten thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars an acre development costs and. $10,000 an acre year farming costs. So, you know, at the end of the day, um, probably, the, you know, might the margins well might not be... Up, well, my, my folks bought the 70 acres like, with a house uh, in 1969 for $145,000. Ouch. So You're not you're not even yeah. buying an outhouse in Glen Ellen for that no, area. Yeah. No. So it was about 1978, maybe 79. I was doing a lot of farming for my dad, hauling tractors, and we had one That's ranch. That's just in, intense farming. Intense farming, Intense yeah. farming. You, you were constantly irrigating, disking, um, sulfuring. We used a lot of sulfur dust back then. They just started to bring in um, the, the fungicides, the DMIs, and that kind of stuff. So uh, I was farming a place, or I did most of the tractor work for my dad over on in Manteca near Delicato Winery. And uh, it was an old Grenache vineyard that was about 35 years old, and it would get, you know, 10, 12 yeah, ton to the acre. Grenache out there. And it was just beautiful, beautiful easy, fruit. Easy. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I spent the summer farming it, and then, you know, towards the middle of August, uh, we would go back to school. Um, and I was playing football, so I didn't venture out too far after school because I had a lot of animals to take care of at home, and I also had some 4-H and FFA projects. And I didn't see the ranch until, I think the last time I saw it was sometime in late August, 
And I didn't see it again till uh, Christmas break. My dad and I were hauling some equipment around. And I drove out there, and the vineyard was completely defoliated. And just these big black furry mold clusters were still on all of the vines. It hadn't been picked. It hadn't been picked. And I had never seen that before. And so I were driving up, and you could start to smell the VA. Yeah, volatile acidity or, or, or vinegar. The vi- yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the berries were turning into vinegar on the vine. On the vine. Yeah. And you could smell the mold. And, you know, that's, it's, it's that cold dooley, uh, tooley fog down in the valley. And it was, you know, maybe 45, 50 degrees. And you could barely see through the fog. And as we came up on it, you could actually smell the vineyard before you could see it. And I'm hmm. looking at it. And I just, I looked at my dad and I was like, you know, what happened? And he just said, you know nobody wanted the grapes. He, he, he couldn't pay, um, give the grapes to any of the wineries because they were so full from the 75, 76, and I think 77 harvest that there was physically no room. And, you know, I went to school with the Franzias, played football against the Gallos. The Indelicados were good friends of my grandparents, so we always saw them at, at birthdays and anniversaries and that kind of thing. So it wasn't like we weren't connected to the wineries a little bit. But they just physically didn't have the space, and my dad was willing to give them the grapes if they would just pay the, the picking costs back. And back then, it was like $35, $40 a ton to pick, hand-pick fruit. Yeah, um, yeah right? <laughs> it takes you back. Because I look at this stuff now, and I'm just like, oh, my God, my dad's rolling over in his grave. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. So, um, you know, that's, that was a, a real kind of defining uh, moment kind of in my, as I got into adulthood, but I'd never seen that kind of pain on my dad's face. He really had a difficult time answering me that, you know, just nobody wanted the grapes. And so, you know, I kind of thought, I I need to do something about this. And that's when I I thought about, uh, you know, going into winemaking. At the time, I was kind of on a path to actually be a veterinarian. Uh, Like I said, I was raising a lot of animals, and I had a buddy that I was showing um, pigs against down in uh, Oristemba, Oristemba High, down south of Modesto. And he and I were going to apply to vet school. We became good buds because we kind of showed the circuit um, 11 or 12 fairs in California. And uh, we... We were going to go to UC Davis, and, and so we applied to vet school, and actually we got in. Well, I knew he would get in, but I wasn't too sure about myself. <laughs> and then, you know, I think I had just turned 18, and I, I looked at the course catalog when I went up there, and it was eight years of additional schooling. Wow. Hell and I'm like 18 years old, and I'm like, are you frigging kidding me? I'm not going to school for eight years. And, and he was like, no, 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 but we get a doctorate in veterinary medicine. And I'm like, I don't care if you get a doctorate in partying. Like, I'm not going to school for eight more years, man. You know? And, I, and so then it was like, what do I do, right? I, was, I really enjoyed chemistry and biology, and this is, this is going to sound, oh, you guys might relate to this, but I was on the vine pruning team. You know, in the winter, I didn't play a winter sport. I actually was on, we won the state championship my senior year, and it was competitive pruning. Speed or accuracy, both. Both, both. So, and you had to do cordon, head, and cane, and then the fourth was theory, and all of the testing was out of Winkler's general viticulture. 
Nice. And um, so we were the Cordon champs for three years, well, and I then think finally won right it choice. all. So, so then I decided to go to to study winemaking, and then it was either day I'd applied to Davis, Cal Poly, and Fresno, and having grown up in the Valley, Davis and Fresno were really the last two places I wanted to go. The, Cal Poly was on the beach, man. Like, <laughs> are you kidding me? Let's let's go to Cal Poly. It's got to be better than the Valley, right? Right. It's got to be. Well, they didn't have a winemaking school. So then I thought about ornamental horticulture, but it, it was winemaking that I wanted to do and really study. And, um, you know, my dad had gone to, at the time, it was called Fresno State College. He had a degree in dairy science from there um, and, and a minor in ag business. So uh, the joke around our house was my dad would pay for school if we went to his alma mater. Well, pfft. He didn't have a nickel to his name. So uh, I ended up going to, to Fresno State, I think, just because my dad had, had gone there. You know, that was, that was a big thing for me. Um, and, you know, I was in the class of we, my class graduated undergraduate in 1984. There were 13 of us. And uh, there were only five of us that entered as freshmen. You know, they were all a lot of kids coming from SRJC at the time. And. Hmm. A few people with masters in philosophy and history, and not oh, being able to be, become employed. Right and now, now they want to do something real, yeah. you know, so or something that yeah gave them the emotional, uh, the emotional feeling that their philosophy isn't giving them right. right? <laughs> Till they took micro and biochem, and then, then they were like, "Now I remember why I was a philosophy <laughs> major," <laughs> right? So. Um, yeah, that was kind of how I got into it was just, Thank you know, you. I, for... I, I just really, um, it was, it was kind of, you know, from the heart. I want to know what happened to that old Grenache vineyard. I'm sure it's a housing development or something now. You know, I think it, uh, I drive by there. It's off of French Camp Road and Highway 99. Okay. And so yeah, when I, I go visit that. my folks, it's not too far from there. Um, and it's set back off the road. So I, I don't know if the vineyard's still there, but it's, it's not, it's not housing yet. All right. You know, yet. but um, it will be, you know, I, I uh, mean, unfortunately. It's so fascinating to me um, to, you know, you were intimately involved in sort of the the transition from the California grape industry being just a, another agricultural commodity product mm -hmm. yeah. to you know at $85 a ton uh to what it is now uh I mean it's it's so much it's so much different uh and and so quickly uh, it's, yeah, it's it really crazy. happened during my career. Right, it's all yeah, your fault. No, I, totally I, I, it's totally your fault. And it is totally <laughs> my fault. And did any yeah. of your classmates um, at Fresno go on? Any of one that we would know? Um, let's see. Phil Steintreiber is the winemaker up at um, Diamond Creek. Mm -hmm. uh, another classmate just retired uh, as the winemaker for Andy Quaddy. I think he'd been there like 38 years. He yeah. went there right after... Yeah. Right after school, um, Joe Briggs yeah. had August Briggs, right. and um, he actually sold his brand to his employee. And now he's just living; he's a living the life of leisure a little bit. Actually, he does he does some uh, private label projects, and then he um, he likes to do a lot of fishing. And you know, he's definitely he and Sally are just kind of enjoying cool. life. That's cool. Uh, let's see, uh, Chris. There was a uh, Chris Johnson worked for KJ and unfortunately passed of pancreatic cancer. Um, he was either at Cardinal or Robert Pepe or one of the KJ yeah. wineries. 
Let's see. Now you're really asking me well, all 13 I, yeah, of it. But yeah. I had it all 13. I was just curious if anyone that yeah. we would know. Uh, Van Williamson was yeah. in my, my class up in Mendocino County. I Van. Van was a lot older than you. Yeah. Well, Van is a. Well, he looks a lot. No. <laughs> uh, we all kept up with Van pretty well in college, but just like after we graduated, nobody could keep up with Van after that. So. Um, but Van has done very, very well up in, in yeah. Mendocino County. You know, he apprenticed kind of under Jed Steele right. in, in the early 80s. And um, Jed was really one of those pioneers that, that, that really took California premium winemaking to that next level here in the North, North Coast. I first met, um, first met him in, uh, on a trip, on a barrel trip to Missouri. And uh, there was a lot of bourbon involved at the time. So yeah, we saw the true van at the time. Oh, yeah. A great, great guy. Great soul. Love him. Great soul and just a very, very intelligent man, too. I remember uh, having biochemistry with him, and he could rattle off pathways, and he could do things that... So uh, what labels would we know from... Ed Meads. He made Ed the wine, okay. um, wines at Ed Meads for many years, um, up until even when KJ bought it and was there for a while now he does his own label he has a little tasting room i think in philo okay and um i think his kids are all grown and uh, in fact i think he's a grandpa now and yeah well i gotta really thank you for bringing the rosé it's delicious oh yeah perfect. so i'm really how did you run into the people at three sticks three sticks well that was that, um you know i I got an email actually from Bill Price, you know, in um, February of 2014, uh, the folks at William Siam and I also, we decided that it, uh, I wasn't going to stay on. I was uh, figuring an exit strategy. I'd been there like 16 vintages. I was going to do another vintage and then um, kind of pass the torch on to Jeff and the crew. And uh, so it was announced in, in February of 14 that I was going to be leaving William Selliam. And uh, I got a, an email from Bill. And I had met Bill socially. I knew Michael Brown. I know Michael Brown and Dan Costa actually really well when we had to drink a lot of their um, crappy 99 Sauvignon Blanc from Lake County that <laughs> re-fermented in the bottle. Um, so I knew those guys pretty well, and, and Bill and a group of guys um, had made an investment in Costa Brown in 2008, and so I'd seen him at a couple of the Costa Brown tastings and parties and things like that, but I didn't really know Bill on a personal level. So he asked me if I wanted to come to dinner, and uh, we met over at um, Zazu at the Barlow, and uh, had dinner one night, and he brought some really, he brought, brought a nice... Um, uh, Montrachet. Uh, he likes to drink Burgundy, so he was definitely after my heart in that respect. Um, and a couple of other wines, and we just sat there and chatted, and he asked me what I was going to do. And uh, to be honest with you, I hadn't figured out exactly what I wanted to do, just that I needed a change, and I needed to do something different. The thing about William Selliam is, you know, when I started there, there were like six of us employed, and we were making maybe 4,500 cases of wine. And I became the general manager kind of by default, not because I had the skills to do it, but I was like the senior person there, if you will. And um, over the years, I had a really great CFO, and then the owners, the ownership led by John Dyson, um, really great finance guys that taught me a lot about business, marketing, 
You know? A lot of guys in the wine business don't know that. No, no. And I didn't really take any management classes in, in college. You know, my, my advisor would get very upset with me when I go, check this out. I'm in a biochem lab and we're spinning out, you know, E. coli DNA and then mapping <laughs> it. And he'd just shake his head and go, you know, but Bob, you've got to take a management class and you need to take a uh, finance class and... And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll get to that at some point. And, of course, you never do. So, um, Practical learning. Exactly. Best, and, right? you know, the youthful exuberance of just enjoy. I really enjoyed school. And when I got to university, I felt like it was a, a good place for me. And I was really learning a lot. And, I, you know, I, I just wasn't interested in finance or, or management or those kind of no, things. No, neither so. was I, believe yeah. me. So we went to school to have fun. Yeah, but I mean yeah. that was and making wine that, was, that was a lot 70 of seventy through seventy four, you know, so way before you. And so you started at three sticks. What was your first vintage there? So grape to bottle would be fifteen. Fifteen. Yeah, and yeah, over the the next like ten months, Bill and I kind of kept in contact. I spoke to a lot of other people, and we <laughs> talked about doing this and doing that, and. You know, I just told Bill I don't I didn't want to run a company. I really didn't, you know, want to do a lot of marketing. We needed to bring in um an assistant that could we could promote up to winemaker. I really want to take a couple steps back. You know, what got me here was really my core competence, which was winemaking and grape growing. But I liked making the money I was making up here, <laughs> running a company. And so that's the goal is to go back to this, grape growing and winemaking, but make money like I'm a GM and, and I'm running a company. To, to be clear, since we're on the radio, uh, the the winemaking pot is down here, and the yeah. making money part down is, low. Is, is up Way high. up high. Up here. <laughs> so <laughs> just... For, and, for clarity's and, sake. Right. And and that's why I took the, you know, they were going to, they paid me more money to be the GM. And, you know, uh, I had a, a CFO that reported to me. I had a marketing manager. And eventually the last couple of years when we hired Jeff Mangahas to replace me in 2011, I had a winemaker, uh, you know, titled good, winemaker that team. reported to me. So, um, and then a facilities manager as I was building a, $25 million winery. So, you know, I was buying properties, developing properties. I was growing the brand, um, you know, assembling a, a team of people around us so when that we could sleep? be successful. You know, well, that was the thing. Is, <laughs> yeah. That was the other thing yeah. was I was working, you know, 80 hours a week and it wasn't harvest. And I just couldn't sustain that. And then I was start as my daughter was getting older, I was starting to be late for basketball games and I was late for guitar practice or I wasn't practicing my guitar and and I kind of felt like I was missing her life and I remember in 2013 and then you know my family had always been really great about not you know where are you you know how come you're not home her birthday party started an hour ago I, I never got any of that from my wife or my daughter and so they afforded me this really wonderful opportunity and, and um, career, but there was also a big payoff too. I made really great money and we all got to travel together because that was a little bit of a stipulation I had with William Salyam is that they had to be able to travel with me. And so they would fly us around business class or first class and we'd stay at, you know, the Ritz-Carlton in Kapalua or, you know, the Four Seasons and, 
um, Jamaica. And so we were doing a lot of fun things together. And even though I'd have to run off and do a winemaker dinner or a seminar or, or a ride along, at least at night I got to have dinner with them and I got to, to sleep in the same hotel. But they were pretty nice hotels, Keep the family too. Intact, right. Man. So, so we were we really got to spend a lot of time, a lot more time than I think most winemakers are afforded. So, for me, it really it was working well, but it it just it was a hamster wheel I couldn't get off. And I had been uh, talking to ownership about you know backing off on some of this stuff. And unfortunately, William Salem is from a business point of view in the wine business. We were making money, which we all know that doesn't happen while you're while you're making the wine. Usually you make your money when you sell the winery or you sell the brand. That's when every, everybody cashes out. We were actually profitable and paying big taxes. Well, a lot of that wine is you know. pre-sold. I mean, exactly. You're, yeah, you've got the list there where people are waiting to get on it. 30, we had 30,000 active buyers. And yeah. that's the other thing is Jesus. I came to realize that, that what we were doing at William Salyum, and I'm not sure how we did <laughs> 30, that. 30,000? Yeah, yeah, active, wow. which means they had bought at least a bottle of wine in the last 18 months. Wow. John, yeah. they would get calls from attorneys saying couples that were going through divorces and one attorney would call and say, all right. Uh, the wife the, got, got the, uh, the allocation got the to allocation. William Salyum. So, and, I mean, it was so crazy. then the husband <laughs> would call later on and go, the blankety blank got my allocation. And, and, you know, we're businessmen too. We're like, well, we can give you an allocation now too. Right. Yeah, but then that's no lie. And you, yeah. We had one guy that, was so, that, way. Like that was so afraid we were going to kick him off the list. I The girls in the when we were in these trailers before we built the new winery i hear this girl go "Ooh!" and i go what's up and this guy had missed his allocation he hadn't hadn't put it in uh because his mother had died and he for proof he sent a copy of the the death certificate no 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 i don't <laughs> no no this. lie <laughs> like it's you're trying to like, like get out of your final exam right, or something yeah. like that. right he he was so worried. Ferris Ed Selium missed wine allocation. Exactly. <laughs> That's just Ed Selium had people so paranoid that if you didn't buy, you got bumped down or you got kicked off. And I was one of those people. I was on the the Williams. What was the retail on that wine? So average bottle price when I left was fifty eight dollars. And that was a long time ago. You know, but if you're selling thirty thousand cases, yeah, yeah. an average direct to consumer, yeah. which means you're putting you're getting fifty eight dollars a bottle. Not wholesale. Our wholesale. We had the universal wholesale price, which was fifty eight dollars. Yeah, and and let's face it. At that point, Pinot prices hadn't gone through the roof like they. I I don't mean go through. Well, no, they haven't gone through the roof like they have in the last ten, twelve years, right? No, no. How does Costa Brown pull it off? Uh, pretty much the same thing, and yeah, I think it was I think it was the '05 vintage or Very '06 simple. vintage that got them a lot of uh, big scores acclaim, and and yeah. then they were off and running. Yeah, yeah. Keep going. Well, okay. So, Bob, when when Bill Price takes you out to lunch and sits you mm-hmm. down, does he have a concept in mind? Does he does he already have three sticks in the back of his head, and he's just looking for the right guy, or is it? sort of a partnership between the two of you and him saying, you know, I really want to work with you. Can we find something to work on? Well, here's how I kind of settled in with Bill versus some other people I had talked to. Um, you know, I asked Bill, you know, 
when we're in the middle of negotiations, what, what, what are we doing? What are we trying to accomplish here? What, what's the real goal with Three Sticks? And he said, well, you know, I bought Behringer Wine Estates with, with the uh, TPG group, Texas Pacific group, back in the 90s when it was pretty much famous. You know, they had won Wine of the Year a couple of times. And he goes, and I bought Kessler when they, in, eight, in 2008 when they were famous. Costa Brown, 2008. What he was trying to do with the concept of Three Sticks was, could we build a world-class winery from the ground up? Mm. And, you know, he had a couple, Jeff Gaffner made a couple of the first vintages. Uh, then Don moved in and made a few. And, you know, and then I said, okay, well, we can do that, you know, with the vineyards that, what really attracted me to the Three Sticks job was that Bill owned Doral, he owned Gap's yeah. Crown. He had access to fruit that a lot of people didn't have access to. Those are beautiful properties, too. And you know, pretty much why I took the job at William Salyam, you know, it wasn't because I was going to get to make William Salyam. I was going to get to work with Rocchioli and Hirsch and Precious Mountain, Coastlands and yeah. Farrington. I mean, vineyards that I just dreamed about as a winemaker growing up in Sonoma County. So that that opportunity to me was worth more than than making the wine itself. So uh, I said, okay, well, if we, you know, with the vineyards that you have and you let it, you give me access to the, the really good blocks, then I think we can do that. You know, why else are we here? And he said, well, I've been putting a lot of money into Three Sticks over the years. We've never been profitable. And I would like for it to at least become a sustainable business where I'm not putting too much money in at the end of the year or any. If it. And I said, if we make great wines, eventually we'll, we'll be profitable. It's not going to... It's not going to cost you. And I said, so then really, why are we here? And this was a little bit of the kicker for me. And he said, well, I, wanna, I want this company to be a sustainable company that, um, he goes, I have a great life. And I want to have a company where my employees have great lives too. And if we can make wine, have fun, grow some grapes, be profitable, I can afford to pay them. They can go to really great places on vacation. I want a company with people with great lives. And I was like, huh? Yeah. Like, who am I talking to? Like, you know, who says that? Seriously. I mean, I had already had conversations. What bottle of Montrachet was that? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And and so that kind of struck a chord with me at that point. And that's when I really pushed to make the partnership. You know, we, we we were close at making it work, but we were still at at odds on a couple of little items and it was like okay i want to give this a try for a while and let's let's see how it goes as long as he can be patient you know this isn't going to happen overnight and and it i think it is paying off i mean i think we've made some great wines we've assembled a great team uh you know ryan pritchard went from associate winemaker to winemaker after the 2016 vintage so in the spring of 2017 we and I want to help push Ryan's career into that that next level. You know, I don't know that he wants to be in that, um, you know, uh, Bob Cabral level because it's 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 an uncomfortable level to be at, really. And it is for me. Public speaking for me now is really a lot more difficult than before because 
there's an expectation. Uh, when when I was nobody, all the expectations. When I was no, but really nobody making wines at Alderbrook and Cundy and Deloach and just having fun making wine. Now I sit on a panel and they start looking at me like, well, what kind of oak did you? Why did you use that kind of oak? Why is that kind of toast? Blah blah blah. blah. And, you know, and they're they're looking for these epiphany statements, and I don't have any. Again, I make really good wines because I have a great team around me, and I get really good grapes. I mean, like spectacular grapes. And that, that's what it's about, you know. And for me, the journey at this point in my life is almost more fun than trying to enjoy a bottle of wine at the end. I, I have a difficult time just sitting down and enjoying a glass of wine because I think about it too much. What was the winemaker trying to accomplish? Yeah. What were the grape growers trying to accomplish? Where, where was it grown? Who's tended this? You know, is it really the amount of oak they wanted? Is it really the acidity that they wanted? What was the growing seed? And after a while, you go, do you God, guys, just give me a cocktail. Shut it off. Yeah. Right. Do give you, me a cocktail. Do you guys have yeah. that you problem, um, Bart? I mean, I, honestly. I mean, I, I don't know that it's, I, I don't know that I'm as deep about it as Bob is, but I do taste things. I, you know, someone said to me when I was first getting in the wine business, learning how to taste, they said, you know, if you try to focus on, what you um, love about the wine, the bad aspects will, you know, show themselves. And so, you know, sometimes you do, you try to figure out, well, why do I like this wine? And, you know, or you find those things you don't like and well, why don't I like them? What did they do wrong? You know, was it grapes? Is it the wrong, you know, is Sonoma Coast Cabernet the right thing that they've done here? Did the press uh, blow did up? Did the press blow up? You know, up. during yeah. the middle of the press cycle, which I've had happen. Right. You know, and then you're, you spend three hours digging out your $3,000 a ton Chardonnay that everybody expects you to make a 95 point yeah. out of. And, and you know, the, 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 the writers, the public just don't see that side of what we go oh, through sometimes. And, yeah. and so even the wines that may not seem to to be those outstanding wines in the critic's eyes have a lot more deep meaning to those of us that are there, you know, with the cuts and the, the bruises and the split fingers from the, the acids and the alcohol. I appreciate what you're doing. So, you Believe know? me. Yeah. You, you're making some great wines. And, and and I just I'm back to that's what I'm doing now too. I, I you know, Ryan looks at budgets. I don't even look at that well, stuff. Look, and, you, and I thank Bill for that because he, he really for two years I did I was in a lot of meetings. I was trying to mentor people and I said, I'll help you with this. Well we did a five year strategic plan, we did a five year production plan, five year marketing plan. And then it was like, Okay, these are living documents, guys. You gotta work on them. They can't go into the bottom shelf. Yeah. And you all have to communicate and come together and talk about it. But I'm going to go grow grapes now. And Bill afforded me that opportunity. So I'll always That's be grateful perfect. to him for that. That, that was something that, that. So we had a, a, an email. That, did you read this email this morning? From, from, a, from a, a listener of ours uh, in, in Atlanta. They, who, they could be the biggest geeks that we've met yeah, so far. We've, yeah, we've like really... I don't know what we've done to these people, but they're like texting about our podcast and they have like a long running thread and they're talking about us. They probably talk about the podcast more than we do, which is maybe we should do more of that. Can but I say this is a good thing? Though. Yeah, it's a great thing. No, okay. we love this. Okay. <laughs> okay. Where did it come on? Uh, I think you sent it to me I think you just sent it uh, because that's all the we, conversation. We'll send yeah, them over it, to you. It was through, and you know, these, these are the guys who came and tasted our wines and, and bought wine from us a couple weeks ago. Um, 
and I, he must be in finance. I don't even know if we got into that because he sent this, all these questions about Bill Price and about the role of you know private equity in the wine world. And, and um, really, in my mind, I think you've answered a lot of his questions without us having to, to bring them out specifically. But uh, the thing that you keep coming to that I, I think matters the most um, is his, his patience. Um, the, the understanding that, um, you know, unlike most finance worlds where you can measure things on a quarterly basis, you know, you're when the wine, you, you know, it's, it's a five year measurement. It's a 10 year measurement. It's a, it's vintage to vintage. Uh, and it takes a long time to build that. And and maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, because you've seen and worked with a lot of those different sides and different kind of ownership levels, but how important that understanding that, you know, wine is, uh, it's no matter how you look at it, it's a long-term play, whether it's making it or or owning it. (laughs) Totally. And I think Bill really does get that having been in the wine business. And and it's not that he doesn't he isn't impatient at times. I think he is, you know. Um, But, the thing about it, too, is that, that Bill does this out of passion, too. You know, he, he told me he left Texas Pacific in the mid to late 2000s because he had they had made a pretty big deal. I think his, one of his last big um, duties was chairman of the board of Continental Airlines. And, you know, he got that merged in with United. I think they walked away with a fair amount of capital. And Bill said, I'm done doing these kind of deals. I don't want to sit across from these tables with a bunch of lawyers bickering back and forth. I'm going to take my pile. I'm going to grow, grow grapes. And he, he told me there's only so many places on, on God's earth that grows great Pinot Noir and great Chardonnay here in California specifically. And he wanted to make those investments. And he told me he wanted to make those investments to preserve those vineyards for the next generations. Nice. And, I, and, you know, I, I, there aren't too many people that are going to be that patient because right. let's face it, when's the next plague coming to hit it? You know, it's red blotch there's, there's or something. There's something. There's that, something. So he's, yeah. you know, he understands the, the replanting cycle and that it, this isn't, you know, a 10 year deal or a 20 year deal. This can be a lifetime deal. And, and I think that's what impressed me a lot about Bill. And even the conversations I have with him now, you know, I really see him most happy. He gets very bored when we do have a meeting. And you know you've lost his attention when he's looking at his phone, and or he's, you can just tell that his he's done with whatever we're talking about. He doesn't want to be there anymore. You go out in a vineyard. I've been out there eight hours, ten hours, literally, driving up and down, walking up and down rows, and he just seems very at peace doing that kind of yeah. thing. And I think that's what he wants to do. You know, Bill's sixty-two, I think. Yeah. And, and it's, it's great to be able to, I'm 56, I'll be 57 here um, in a while, and, you know, to work with somebody that, that sees this as a long-term um, kind of shepherding of those vineyards, you know. It's about, when we look at Durrell, it's not, you know, it, it's, it's not necessarily always about the total amount of income, but how are we going to replant? What blocks do we need to start pulling out because we aren't getting the tonnage that we need to? 
But more importantly, so that there are grapes for Ryan and Ashley and the young winemakers that are working with me now at Three Sticks and their, their buddies, so that these kids want to make Durrell for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So how do we plan that out from a vineyard planting schedule? And, and listeners, you have to understand, I mean, Durrell is a uh, it's, it's coveted land in Sonoma Valley. Um, I guess it was KJ that probably did the first Durrell bottling right that or st jean maybe. or st jean yeah, yeah. yeah but you was st jean yeah, where is yeah. durell would be uh kind of west and a little bit south of here so uh it's off of uh kind of between felder and um fowler creek fowler creek yeah, yeah. okay yeah it kind of sp- stretches those two 600 so you, acres. if you know sonoma yeah. valley yeah. uh where the cement plant is and basically yeah, the, south, the yeah. southwest corner or the of the feed valley store. and the feed store yeah. Brocco's feed store yeah. that vineyard that goes up towards west the west of there towards the mountains yeah. exactly. okay that's the, 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 the vineyard that's actually on arnold drive is lay pierre owned by Sonoma Cotrere, and then it's Durrell's Durrell's behind, behind it okay. and then it goes up over that ridge into that bowl right there's several blocks up that way too and and it's basically it's the you know it's just below where Bart lives, below the slide. And you go out there, and you know we have some some Cabernet vineyards, uh, the Severson Stone Edge, which is sort of the other side of Fowler Creek from there. And it's it's gravelly riverbed soil. You walk through the Durrell Vineyard; it's it's not, you know, it's not it's not the clay that's across the street in the Leveroni hayfields. It's it's you're walking on these these rocky riverbed soils. Uh, and that's you know, and and talk about that because that's you know yeah. no, one no, of the no. things that's that the, that's that's yeah. what I think really gives those those uh, those Chardonnays especially that characteristic. I think Chardonnay and the rootstocks that they have it on really mine that kind of mineral gravelly kind of uh, characteristics, and then. You know, there are pockets that are very cold in that, you know, mm-hmm. where, where cold air funnels down to, especially as you go up over that ridge. You talked about a bowl. We call them the DO blocks, DO1 through DO5. And to me, that's all the killer Chardonnay. I mean, that's some of the old Wente selection. Right. And, you know, and that's where we try to make, that's where we try to get the majority of our fruit from for our Durrell uh, bottle. When, when I worked at Kenwood, we used to get, there was a field that they planted for Kenwood. It was Cab, Cab Franc, and Merlot mm-hmm. up on top of that bowl. And it was always, you know, at the time, we never really knew how to farm it or grow it or make wine out of it correctly. But yeah. Um, I think that's all been pulled out now, though, right? It has. And, and actually, to the east of it, there's a little bit of Pinot Blanc uh, and then a couple of other clones of Chardonnay. We have a Mount Eden and then also a Ruid, which is kind of this uh, tutti fruity clone. You know, it's got a lot of tropical. Um, not a huge fan of it, but a little bit goes a long way, put it that way. <laughs> and then... Um, Across from that is where we're planting. We've, we're redeveloping 14 acres of Pinot Noir up there, and we're using primarily heritage clones and field selections. I, I, I can see that from my house. I've been I've yeah. been watching monitoring it for you. So yeah, so I think questions. yeah, I think the root I think <laughs> the root starts on the job, now, man. So, yeah. on the yeah. job. So again, though, to have fruit for that next generation, and I think awesome. Bill really sees that vision. And three six is is kind of benefiting from those early blocks, and we get to play around with the different clones and different rootstocks. And well, if this Chardonnay really is from Durrell, 
you're doing a good job. Unfortunately, this one, this is up on, this is our Sonoma Mountain. So it's actually. Is that the one sky? One sky, yeah. And and is that on the um, west side of Sonoma Mountain or the east side of Sonoma? More like the north. So it's just to the other side of, um, oh, there's a Pinot Noir vineyard up there. Vanderkamp. Yeah, Yeah, so we're planted just above the Vanderkamp. So it's actually more of a north-facing Um, Looking down towards Bennett Valley there. Right, exactly. Um, And then as you come, you know, as you get down to the other, it kind of peaks there on the road, and then you go down the other side towards Runner Park, Bennett Valley Road. It's a a delicious Chardonnay. Uh, The the acid structure in the fruit. And then there's a couple of other vineyards there, too. We've got four tons from the Belden Ranch, the old Steiner uh, property, which is an old Wente selection up there. So when we say Wente, it's usually got a little bit of virus. The grape growers will understand this part. And and then um, Melorandage, which is chicks and hens, so big berries, tiny berries. Hmm. And so they're very concentrated, and you have a lot of times a lot, lot more little clusters instead of big monster clusters. How's it looking in the field right now? You know, um, what I've seen so far set looks really good. And I've seen a lot of doubles, which means there's, you know, like two clusters per shoot uh, and even triples. And um, will you leave leave triples out there? It depends on the vineyard and the age of the vine. You know, there's a couple of well, like up at one sky, we have some uh, Calera and some 943 that if I drop too much fruit, this stuff will be ripe in August. Right. And I don't want that. So the thing about Pinot Noir is balancing the vine. It's not, I'm not necessarily worried about tons per acre. William Selliam, it was always not to exceed three ton to the acre. And I thought that that was always kind of a bad practice, but they paid the growers very well to do that. Um, But I think, you know, we did a lot of extra hedging and, and pulling of shoots and leaves and laterals that you might not have had to do if the vine was a little better balanced. So when I set up the the estate vineyards, as I bought properties for the William Selliam estate, you know, I really took a look at road direction, sunlight, were we going to be cane pruned? Were we going to be bilateral cordon? What root stock? I I usually laid out, well, like it where the new winery is, it's uh, 14 different blocks that are different irrigation blocks set up by rootstock, and then I chose clones. So, you know, I actually chose trellising, rootstock, road direction, um, you know, three or four other things before I decided what clone of Pinot Noir to put on there. I knew I was going to go with Pinot, but um, I think there's other more uh, important decisions than clone. Clones are fun to play around with. Road decision is one of the ones that... um just uh, nothing drives me crazier than you drive by a vineyard that's going in and because the easy thing to do is to make the rows perpendicular or parallel to the yeah. property line or the road that they're along. Right. So that's what you do. And you're like, uh, and talk about it because, you know, something that we've talked a little bit about in the famous fill line of fruit hanging with integrity and dappled sunlight, the way you get dappled sunlight, you start with the way you design the rows because you always talk about the morning side and the afternoon side, but if you don't have those vine rows lined up so that you actually are capturing the morning sun on the side that you think is the morning sun and the afternoon on the side that you think is the afternoon, then... Right. It's not a fucking mystery where the sun is coming up and where it's going down. It goes the same place every day, you know, not every day, but, you know, on June, we're coming on to the solstice. This will be out the day after the solstice. You know, that's the farthest north that the sun is going to get. And you need to 
you have to know where it's going to be, where it's going right. to rise, right. Right. where it's going to set. And yeah. at the William Salyam Estate there, um, at the, what we called the Litton Estate down from the Rocchioli Ranch, we were 10 degrees off of uh, due northeast to southwest. Okay. And we moved it just a little bit because I knew around the end of September to the early part of, uh, or uh, end of August, first part of September, which is about when we would harvest fruit, start to harvest Pinot along West Side Road, that during the heat of the day, I wanted that sun directly over that canopy. Mm-hmm. And we did shadowing studies. We put up blocks and boards and followed, go. followed, followed. Uh, which all sounds kind of crazy, but that was it. No, we did 32 it, it doesn't to us. And, that's that's the point. Yeah. It doesn't sound crazy. That sounds yeah. completely logical. And that's what you should be doing. That's what you should be doing. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to going, well, the driveway is here. Right. So I think the road should go that way. Yeah. So it looks pretty right. as you drive in. You know? right. And, and right. you see that. You see that all over Sonoma County. You see it all over Napa County. It's, uh, you know, the most important thing when you are designing your vineyard is that, that road direction. And anything you do after that, if you miss that, it doesn't matter. No. Drove the our vineyard manager a little bit crazy. Oh, Chris sure. Bolin, he's a great guy, but even as the soil changed, I would change rootstocks. Oh, yeah. And it became a different, you know, I might leave the same clone on there. But you're working but, it. You you understand well, it. Well, you know, the funny part, what was most gratifying about this is there, I think everybody thought I was a little loony, including the, the investors in New York. And we started planting the pro. We bought it in 2001. And I started planting in 2002 and finished about 2004 on the, on the upper parcel. And in 2007, off of those blocks one, two, and four, we made the 100-point wine off of it. And I think that kind of legitimized, right. you know, I mean, it was great for marketing. They love that right. stuff. 100 points is like, they don't even have to work at selling a wine that, yeah. <laughs> that gets that kind of score. But for me, it really it legitimized my, my um, mantra of, of timing, you know, right. not just pulling leaves, but when you pull leaves, not just shoot thinning, but when you shoot thin, whether you're going to cluster thin, uh, when you irrigate or not irrigate, um, whether you're using a, a, a crop, uh, a, a, a row crop, um, whether you're cultivating or not, all of those decisions, I think, affect the health of that vine and that synergy within that vineyard. And for me, it kind of legitimized all this crazy stuff that I would be out there, you know, being obstinate about it. You know, like, why aren't these shoots tucked? You know, well, because we're going to tuck them again in another week. And it's like, I don't care what it cost. I really, that's not the point of this. It's right. can we make the perfect wine? It, we're not selling and, it. It's not eighty five dollars. No, it was a hundred. Right. We were we yeah. came out at a hundred dollars a bottle for the first William Salyam Estate wine, and within three vintages, we had a hundred point wine, and it was like, oh, okay. Then you can go now through I there understand. three and four times. Now, and there thin you and, go. It makes you know, sense do we want a wing? Do we not want a wing? When do you wing? Right. You know, when do you do the, those crop thinnings? And I think that all of those, and it's not the same for every vineyard. And or the vintage. thing I or no, vintage. No. And the thing I miss the most about William Salyam is that I walked a lot of those vineyards for 17 vintages. Even if you were a bit of a moron, you saw a lot of stuff go on. Yeah. <laughs> like even if you weren't really paying attention. And having grown up with grapes, I think I do look at things that maybe um, somebody else may not pay attention to. And and that's what I miss the most. And I actually got Hirsch at Hartford Court, my job previous to William Siam. So I was on that ranch for 20 years. 
And I had lunch with David Hirsch last December, just before Christmas, and we we had I just had a wonderful lunch with him, and and you know I missed him, and I think he missed me out there. It was a you know, we didn't always agree on everything all the time, but we were all trying to do the same thing, and that was grow the perfect grape to make the perfect wine. If you work every with, vintage, if you work with somebody you know? that you agree with all the time, that other yeah. person isn't necessary. Right. That's it. <laughs> yeah. You want somebody who absolutely disagrees with you and brings a different Ooh, viewpoint. Isn't that called marriage? Yeah. <laughs> also, I'm going to just sit here and also, contemplate that one for a yeah. while. <laughs> no, but what I love about this conversation is you're talking. You know what it took to make a hundred point wine, and well, it was also we, just a lot. I mean, but there's no, it, it was there all was about the vineyard. Too. It's you yeah. know, we, sure there was a barrel decision that went in there that was really important, and and some fermentation decisions that were really important. All about the grapes. But if, if you if yeah. you weren't paying, you know, spending that time and that money, you know, yeah. those investors back in New York yeah. who were always complaining about the money spent in the vineyard. Yeah, it doesn't matter what barrel you use. Exactly, and. Uh, you know, most of those blocks. 2007 was actually a pretty good vintage. We had some, we had some decent yields. 2007 is a great vintage. Yeah. And, and we had board, some, right? you know, most of the yield, you know, we had that not to exceed three ton to the acre. And I know the main swan block, and I had traded a guy named Eric Neal down here in Petaluma, uh, some swan budwood for some Clara budwood that I had down in the Central Coast. Uh, and he had pulled it from Dalinger's octagon block. So that went up by the house. And uh, it was the the blend, the hundred point wine was about sixty five percent that clone, and it was grown at almost four tons to the acre that year, and that's on a five by seven. Mm. Wow. So you're looking at a good eight pounds per vine, seven and a half pounds of vine. Sam, have a lot you, of fruit. Have you ever limited the tonnage? And an acre. <laughs> I mean, a maximum. Are of you three kidding me? Have you met uh, my dad's favorite thing is to take half of your money and burn it on the ground of your vineyard. Uh, we, we, we thin like mad. Um, He's a cluster you know, assassin. Totally. And, and um, you know, there's a. a He's always saying, "Oh yeah, we'll get two tons of the acre off of that," and it's always about a ton and a half. Yeah. I mean, there. I don't think there's a there's ever been an upper limit to anything um you know I, I think more what you have is people going well, can we save some of that mm. uh, but <laughs> you know at the end of the day and that's a, a big difference between uh, you know some pinot noirs and chardonnays and cabernet on the top of the mountain um if you if you don't drop a bunch of that fruit you're never gonna get it ripe anyway so uh yeah. You know, you're you're it's, limited. It's all relevant to yeah. the location of you're, the vineyard. Yeah, you're limited really yeah. more than anything by the soil. Um, you know, you're a big pile of rocks if it came in. Um, you could yeah. do whatever you wanted to do and still get two tons of the acre. Doesn't matter. Right. Precious Mountain out on the coast, which was on the second ridge in from like Flowers and Hirsch and Helenthal and those guys. Um, you know, it was five, little over five acres planted and. You know, I worked with that fruit 17 years. In 2005, we got 1.6 tons total <laughs> off of the five acres. Wow. <laughs> and the most I ever got was in 2008, and that was a little over nine tons. On five acres. On five acres. If we could get a fermenter, a five-ton fermenter, that was a successful vintage yeah. at Precious Mountain. <laughs> and, but I paid him like 10000 or $12,000 a ton what, a, what, for it. What accounts for the difference? Just they were dry farmed, organic, you know. Donnie, Donnie had been growing uh, those grapes since the early '60s. the The main part of the vineyard was actually own rooted Gewurztraminer <laughs> that was grafted over to Pinot Noir. 
<laughs> right? And there were about the, six vines the out there that were... The old Gewürztraminer rootstock. The old Gewürztraminer rootstock on the uh, Sonoma Coast trick. Yeah. You know, no. kind of thing. Oh, tried oh, yeah. and true. Right? <laughs> and then it's dry farmed. Like, he would plant a vineyard and irrigate it because water is so scarce out there. He'd irrigate it for the first three years, and then it, it just had to survive on its own. Yeah. Well, we planted expansion blocks when I started at William Selium in 1998, and they didn't start producing till about 2005, 2006. Oh, wow. So it would take like six, seven years, to eight years get crop off to it. get a crop. Boy, does this Pinot have a nose on it? Wow, is this beautiful smelling? Woo. So this one is from a vineyard up uh, north of, of where That's we're talking nice. about right now, actually. Um, Walala, Walala. Which was Walala, which is how you actually pronounce We all pronounce it Walala. Walala. But it's, it's actually Walala, and it's uh, like a 17-acre vineyard, Yum. all Dijon clones planted in the early 2000s um, by Bill Hill. It was part of the, um, the Cowper's su- investments. Yep. He was going to develop like 10,000 acres up there at one point, and... Right. You know, kind of met with some resistance. On yeah, the log, you know, he was going to log 10,000 acres and plant grapes, and that didn't, didn't happen. It so. didn't go over well. No, which I don't, <laughs> I'm not necessarily sure that it should have been done, but yeah. it makes spectacular. The one thing about it, this particular vineyard does make spectacular wine. I mean, I just think this is, to me, the cat's meow of Sonoma Coast, where you get those big ripe rich dark berry fruits and the spice and you can tell that it's just a happy vineyard especially 2015 you know we're coming towards the end of the drought they they'd gotten a little bit of rain up in that area and the shoot tips of the conifers the redwoods and the the pines up there were nice bright green you know they were they were happy they were growing and when you see the natural flora around a vineyard thriving you know that the vineyard has a pretty good chance of doing well, too, if you just kind of take care of it. I think people discount, you know, you don't plant a vineyard in like a barren, you know, isolated spot that that other things I've don't seen, grow I've seen well. some poorly planted vineyards before. Yeah, and you know, that's a, it's a, a great point about um, how the environment around the vineyard's doing, and that's something that, um, you know, when it comes to to rootstock selection, clone selection, varietal selection, you know, what naturally grows on a piece of land is is hugely informative, you know, how to how to farm that as a vineyard. And, and now I spent all of last week with Philippe Combe, uh, this uh, R- Grenache consultant from from the Rhone, and that's something he wanted to know about all these places is, you know, what what weeds grow out there? Yeah. You know what? What is the the native plants in the area around it? You know that's going to tell you dos limones, dos limones, oh, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Or native you know, insects. Exactly. You know what? What do bees do well? You know, I've yeah. noticed that we started raising bees at the William Salyam Estate just to see the health of the environment around us. Were were our neighbors being sensitive to the environment? Could beehives be sustainable? And I think that a beehive, even if you're if you're a backyard you know, uh, garden grower, that it really is a telltale sign that if bees can thrive, they, they can also do well. Yeah. <laughs> this is this morning in the, uh, you also hear Curry's caller in the background. This is this morning in the Muchos Piedras Vineyard. And, you know, you don't yeah. need bees. We don't need bees. No, we, we don't, don't need them. We don't no. need bees to but make But I love to wine, see them. Ladybugs. It's a thing. Oh, we need bees. Yeah. We need bees. But yeah. We as, need bees. Uh, to, yeah. to make a bottle of wine, there is scientifically, you know, grapes don't, 
They're self-pollinated. Right. You don't need bees to make it, right. but if you don't have a healthy bee population in and yeah. around your vineyard, that's a mm-hmm. sign of, you know, the soils aren't healthy, the environment's not healthy, you're not going to have healthy wines. And Bayer and Monsanto are trying their best to kill them all. Well, you know, <laughs> worldwide. It's, it's, uh, Monsanto doesn't exist anymore. It's all Bayer now. Right. It, oh, that's yeah. right. It, they did buy, didn't they? Wow. Well, this was beautiful. And um, which of these three wines do you like the best? Which is your favorite? When you go home. Who's your favorite child? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) My favorite child. You know, if, uh, you know, on a desert island kind of thing, I would would pick the Walala Pinot, I think, because I could drink it. I think it's going to have the longest life of the three wines, and it's going to change dramatically over that life. Um, And I would, I, I would get to get to see that so if i if i could only drink it because wine is such a living thing that i would want a wine that i could see over time well bob you're a music guy if you so if you're going if you're going to this desert island what uh what cd got to take one right you can only take one what are you taking with you with that uh with that pinot yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) he's a guitarist can i have three sure why not (laughs) okay so uh dark side of the moon yep I uh, wish you were here. Yeah. Uh, Zeppelin Four and gl- Physical Graffiti. I think. Okay. No, go back to Jeff Beck's Blow by Blow. Wow. Yeah. That was. Yeah. Unexpected. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff Beck. Yeah. One bring of the that Best back. guitarist in the world. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Unreal. Yeah. So, so you guys, sorry to interrupt. Do you guys know Shep Gordon? Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> so I I love one of his quotes. Shep I think uh, managed a bunch of. People yeah. in the music industry, Anne Alice Murray, Cooper, Blonde, Alice yeah. Cooper, George Clinton, uh, Pink Floyd, Pointer Sisters, and but, actually um, created the um, the celebrity chef. You know, Roger Verger was his first client from France, and you know he started getting Roger appearance fees. They were flying him first class. Um, chef wow. was going over for like the Cannes Film Festival and eating at Roger's um, restaurant, and. That's when Wolfgang Puck, Emeril Lagasse, um, all those guys came to get Daniel Balud, came together and said, we need somebody to, they literally brought him into Wolfgang's down at Spago in Beverly Hills and said, you need to manage us. Wow. And that was kind of the beginning of these guys actually, I said, you need to do that with winemakers, Shep. Come <laughs> yeah. on, man. Like yeah. Winemakers are unmanageable. We're getting, we're, getting, <laughs> we're getting dogged here, man. I love, I love Shep's quote, though, that I read. It's uh, a perfect end of the day, a Maui sunset, a big fatty, and a glass or two or three of Bob Cabral wine. Life is good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect, man. Shep's, right, well, Shep's a good We got guy. some Bob Cabral wine, and I can take care of the other... We just got to get that Maui sunset. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, we have everything else, right? <laughs> I have absolutely no problem with that Maui sunset. Yeah, and right fair off enough. of McKenna. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Love it. Yeah. And you used to live there. So, right there in Wailea. Yep. So, well, hey. Yeah, that's where Shep lives, actually. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's. Have you it's seen a good spot. the volcano going off now? I mean, I think it looks cool. I'm yeah, just glad I don't it, live on that island. Right. But I think it, that river of, of lava it's is amazing just so how cool. fast it's moving. I want yeah. a scuba dive, and my wife thinks I'm nuts, but I want a scuba right where the lava's coming into the You're ocean. Because yeah, I think it cooling. would be cool yeah. to see yeah. how, how it coming down and then and then turning be, solid. Well, so that's cool. how it's they hot. Vol- 
a whole yeah. island formed. All those islands. Yeah, I mean, the yeah. island's just getting bigger. There's more real estate. Yeah. They're just losing some homes in the meantime. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. We've had hey, Bob we better get, yeah, yeah, we better get a shout-out for uh, wanna, oh, the, 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 uh, yes. the Adobe. Yeah. Right? The Adobe is the Adobe, yes. cool. Yeah. yeah, so the Adobe is our home uh, off of West Bain Street, 143 West Bain Street, and uh, it's a tasting... House of Tasting. It I guess you could say it. It's a tasting room. Beautiful. It's one of top three room. coolest tasting rooms For on the sure. Yeah. <laughs> top two. They've maybe. really done an incredible <laughs> no. job with yeah. that. Yeah. No, Bill and Eva restored a home that was built in 1842. And um, that's where you get to come and taste and experience our wine. So if you can't be on Maui, I guess this is the next best it's, place. It's, huh? it's pretty, pretty nice. It's pretty tropical yeah. in the backyard for sure. Yeah. yeah. So really cool. And you can set back there. It's not too bad. Wouldn't huh? be bad. No. You can call for an appointment and uh, or go to the website, just uh, threestickswines.com. Yeah. That's easy. And the website is well well done. Easy to navigate. So Awesome. And where'd these wines get, are delicious. Where did they get the name Three Sticks? William Stanley Price the Third. Bill grew up on Oahu, actually surfing. And uh, tough. I'm sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, no, you know. Bill, no. I I don't know. I think Bill deserves. I I encourage him to do more surfing. To be honest with you, I think everybody he, wants their boss to go yeah, surfing. I mean, you know, that's me. yeah. But I like when he's around too. I mean, I I like to hear the kind of the stories when he's when he gets back from surfing. So um, he was out with a bunch of buddies. They had an old van. And um, one of them found his driver's license and it, you know, most of these guys had like one name, you know, they were locals <laughs> and Bill had William Stanley Price the third. So there were three Roman numerals after his, this very long name. So they started calling him Billy Three Sticks. Excellent. And there when he worked go. with um, the, the guys at Behringer, um, Ed Spraja and... Um, Several of the executives said, if you ever start your own wine brand, don't put your name on the label. And so when he, when they made the first Good couple advice. barrels, he just decided to call it Three Sticks because nice. he was Billy Three Sticks. Yeah. So great shout out. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Bart. Bob, thank you so much thank for coming you for over and bringing me. the great wine. Yeah. yeah. Sam, as always, you're. Opinion is just always perfect. <laughs> love, well, Opinions. I mean, we got to have you. They're all uh, facts. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week.